Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today we've got a special guest. We've got BBC presenter Will Millard. He's won multiple awards for his work on television, including series such as My Year with the Tribe, Hidden Whales, and Go Fish, which was an angling series he's worked in. And Will is a very passionate angler, which we'll talk a little bit about. But before we talk to Will, we're going to cover the news. And seeing as Will loves his fish, I thought we'd cover some fishy news. In this case, one of the largest fish in the world has been seen all over the British shoreline recently, and that's the basking shark. So as of April 2020, Cornwall has had a flurry of basking shark sightings, which in the last 10 years or so, there's been less basking sharks around the southwest, or at least fewer sightings of them. Now, they seem to have moved further north around the Hebrides. That's where the bulk of basking shark uh, encounters tend to be now. Whereas Cornwall, over the last month or so, has had loads. Now, it's probably because of the unusually warmer weather that we've been having. So this April, we've had a lot of sunshine, that's going to cause a bit of an algal bloom, that causes plankton, and the basking sharks come in to scoop all that up and have a great old feed. Now, a recent study on the genetics of basking sharks has found that they travel in family groups, or at the very least, they tend to stick to sharks that they are genetically similar to. It suggests the population in the northeast Atlantic is unlikely to be more than 10,000 individuals. Interestingly, sharks sampled off Ireland and the North Atlantic were genetically different. So there are populations that are close by, but on a genetic level are separate. That's incredible. There are species I've long wanted to see. They're very high up on my bucket list, and I'm sure at some point I will see a British basking shark. But I know one man who has seen plenty of sharks in his time, and that is Will Millard. So here's the interview. We talk about things like angling. We talk about angling in television, but we also talk about ways that you can become a presenter in natural history television. So this is me and Will. So Will, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. No worries. Well, I'm going to get straight into it. Um, you've got a bit of an accolade in that you were chasing a, a record-breaking fish, weren't you? Oh my goodness me. We're really going to go there. Mate, <laughs> I'm already feeling a little bit low about the situation that we're all in at the moment. Um, yeah. Oh God. So... How long ago was it now? It was before I had kids, it was before I was married. Um, I was fishing off the cliffs at Dorset, you know, fishing the high tide last couple of hours, just as it was rising up to its peak, looking for bass, hopefully. And had this take on my rod, didn't feel like a particularly big fish, reeled it in, got it up the cliffs. And I've got this like video clip of me and I'm literally holding this fish. And it's sort of- oh, I, I didn't know it was on video. So there's, there's a video of this, is there? Yes. Ah, Mate, okay. I'm not sending you the video. Honestly, I, think, <laughs> right, I can't send it to a professional. It's so badly shot. But yeah, maybe it will. But yeah it's about as long. It's, it's back, back down to there. And it's a sand eel, a greater sand eel. You know, Lancet, I think they call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at it and I was like, that's the biggest sand eel I've ever seen. And I even say in the footage, I'm like, this is the biggest sand eel I've ever seen. And um, I give it like a quick cursory way, just, you know, out of, purely out of interest sake. And, oh, 10 ounces, that is, that is pretty big. Chuck it back in the sea and away that sand eel swims. Yeah, like out of my clutches forever. And my wife was sort of sat on the top of the cliffs in a state of perpetual last cast misery. And, <laughs> uh, and I came home. Um, and I remember looking at the footage again, and I was like, it really was a big sand deal. And just purely out of curiosity, I was like, I wonder what the rod court record is for the greater sand deal. Looked it up, and I was like, oh, mate, eight ounces. 
No. Passes, you've just smashed the record. And I know it's only a sand deal, but for somebody like me, who's a lifelong passionate angler, but perhaps not the best angler, the greater sand eel rod court record represented the very best opportunity for me to get into the hallowed listings of the British rod court fisheries committee. And uh, yeah, I just blew it. I chucked it straight back in, you know, 10 ounce sand eel by two ounces. They'd be singing the songs about you for years, wouldn't they? If you had that, that record. Mate, I don't begin to even think that I would have been front page on the angling, Angler's Mail. But for me personally, oh, mate, it would have been so sweet. And, you know, just that little, that little accolade, you know, to be like, yeah, that's right, kids. Grandkids. Definitely. And it was... Grand, <laughs> I know. Yeah, so I it back in, mate, and it was unweighed. And I, get, I can kind of see where this question's coming. I can see where you're going with this. And basically, like, what ended up happening... I went away, I did Hunters of the South Seas, which was my big first sort of BBC2 debut four years ago. And when I came back, there was a couple of publishing houses being like, oh, are you interested in writing a book? And I was like, yeah, no, definitely. You know, do you want something about New Guinea, South Pacific, tribal people, you know, the places where I'd spent most of my life. And I worked up a pitch, sent it to them. And in the end, they were like, you write really well, but we're actually more interested in domestic natural history. And I was like, well, guess what? just lost the greater sand deal rod record didn't think they'd be that interested but they could tell something about you know the passion the hurt the pain jack that they were like okay you know i was like could i spend a year going around britain trying to break another peripheral rod court species record and write you this book one year ended up becoming two years and basically i get to the end of that two-year period don't even come close to breaking another fish record but it became the spine of my book the old man in the sand eel and this quest for redemption that actually became it actually became much more about it it became quite emotional i didn't realize at the time i was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder had been for 10 years it'd been undiagnosed but that's a really important sort of part of the book about mental health but then also what it really becomes about is um stepping back into my childhood memories of catching my first fish and fishing with my granddad's and what wild water and wild fish meant to me when I was a kid. And I realized that I think I'd lost sight of that as an adult, you know, I've been fishing for 30, 32 years now. I started when I was four and 36. Um, and the best memories, and I think a lot of your sort of listeners will agree, the best, the best memories of fishing and fish and the natural world and wildlife are, um, are in you from, from when you're a child, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's a shame people do lose that, I guess, but you see the, say, the, the jam jar and the stickleback or that sort of thing, and then people sort of poo-poo the, the little guys, but I'm all for catching the small ones. I, I was actually... Uh, there when someone broke a rod a rod record so i don't know if you know this but uh, someone broke the british rod record for free spine stickleback i, I saw the picture mate uh, in the angle were you there i was there yeah yeah so um this was a f- it was big well i think it was uh 10 drams or something like that off the top of my head i can't remember now but um he he caught this he was tench fishing and he caught the stickleback and said oh jack what's this and i came over to have a look and i said that's you know, fucking enormous is stickleback. Yeah, he was man. just gonna, he was just gonna chuck it back in. I went, no, 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 get, get some scales. He didn't have anything low enough, so he had to drive home. He didn't live far away. Get his kitchen scales, bring them back. We weighed it, and then he submitted it, 
Uh, and eventually the, the process, uh, one thing I would say that you, you won't miss is the process of trying to claim a rod record. He had a right pig of it, but eventually they accepted it. Um, so yeah, I've got the, the accolade of seeing a, a British rock re- rod record fish. So you, you yeah. say I wouldn't like the process, but I think that's something that's so funny. It's so quintessentially British, isn't it? That yeah. some bloke is there with his 10 dram. <laughs> if you're not familiar with your weights and measures, that is less than a gram. We're talking a micro fish. And the yeah. fact that he's being held to the same standards probably as if it was a blue marlin is yeah. hilarious and ridiculous. Oh. It's romantic, isn't it? Do you know I, what I mean? It's, it's eccentric, isn't it? Is the polite way to put it. But, it's, <laughs> but he, he had to have a witness. He had to various pictures he had to sign it was it was surreal but yeah he, they accepted it in the end so you know it's funny, it's funny how it's evolved because you know it wasn't that long ago where um the only way you could claim a record is if you had the specimen basically what like habeas corpus you know the whole latin ideology do you know what i mean and oh, i remember right. that. there was a very famous case one of the most famous carp catches of all time clarissa that was caught by dick walker in the famous Red Mire Pool. Um, and he actually did provide the specimen. Now, Clarissa was kept live. She lived in the end. I think it was in the London Aquarium. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's right. Sounds about right. She lost loads of weight, but he was able to claim the British record officially. But then when Chris Yates comes along with his single grain of sweet corn and, you know, what a poetic, philosophical, romantic angler that guy was, you know, and in the time of buzzer bars and boilies when carp fishing was becoming really commercialized he goes and smashes the record again catches the bishop from the same paul redmire now i only learned this recently but everybody accepted that as the british record at the time but it wasn't an official british record because he refused to give up the fish which is uh, now okay totally fair enough you'd be like why you know taking a fish from its wild habitat or you know worst of all as, as an angler that practices catch and release potentially killing the fish you know why why would you why would you do that and then obviously the rules will change but you know chris yates caught that record not that long ago really i'm trying to think what it was um was it no was it the 50s or 60s or is it later than that i don't i don't know off the top of my head I i've seen the there's that classic photo of him crouching down i think it's a common wasn't it um and he's kind of it's a, it was a mirror is a mirror is it okay and he's in his all he's in his tweed isn't he very kind of chris Appreciate sex with this. Yeah, Clarissa, with this. Was a, Clarissa was a common. That's it. Okay, I'm getting mixed up. But um, yeah, it's, it's very iconic. So is is there a record then? I mean, you may have already answered this, but is there a record you'd like to break then if you could? If you could have any British rod court record? Not really now, eh? I no. Mean, I, think, I think they're one of the greatest, as we talked about before, that kind of getting back to the jam jars. You know, the greatest lesson really was, you know, I didn't find much happiness in pursuing pounds and ounces i can't say i took it that seriously anyway from the outset i mean i know guys who are proper specimen hunters and will you know they've got incredible levels of dedication to catch that sort of one fish it's not really my cup of tea you know no it's it's like, yeah, i mean mate if you put me on it and put me on the spot and god what would be the one the one i'd love to break do you know what Possibly, possibly something, it'd definitely be something, I wouldn't want to, you know, break one of the big ones, you know, like the King Cart record, but like maybe something like the eel, you know, like I yeah. think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that when you look at something like, you know, an eel, no one's stocking eels. They're not being fed up with high protein baits to get to these enormous weights. 
you know, the eel is a, is a genuinely wild creature with, in my opinion, one of the greatest lifestyle backstories, sorry, life cycle backstories of the lifestyle story is not great. He lives in a hole <laughs> and eats, eats innards. But the life cycle, mate, I mean, Sargasso Sea, you know, years of traveling across that, across the streams through the Atlantic to come into our waters, you know, the whole history of the eel, the way that people didn't even know, you know, we used to think that eels in the Victorian era were born from mud, but no, the story is even crazier than fiction. I love eels. So yeah, to break that record, I think would be really special. And it's the only fish out of all the fish that I've caught. And I've, I've been very lucky to have caught, I'd say most of the fish species in the British Isles. Um, you know, apart from the ones that are, you know, really, really hard. Um, or you can't target, obviously. But, yeah. Um, yeah, the eel is probably the only one that I've caught where I'd say, you know what, that was a genuine mega specimen. Like, I caught one in the fens in, um, God, it must have been like the late 80s, like maybe 89 or 90. I was, I was probably, I was really young. And yeah, it was an absolute leviathan. Um, huge. Biggest yeah. deal I've ever seen. They're incredible and, uh, creatures, definitely. Oh, mate, absolutely awesome. But getting back to what you were saying earlier about the kind of, you know, jam jar curiosity stuff. I remember reading an interview with Sir David Attenborough and this interviewer asked him like, oh, you know, so how did you first become interested in animals? And David Attenborough just looks the guy in the face and just replies totally deadpan. Well, what do you mean? How did I first become interested in animals? How did you ever lose your interest in animals? And I think that that's what he's getting at. And that was certainly a running theme in, in my book was that, a love for animals is innate within us all, yet it's something that's driven out of people at a young age. You know, like when kids come through my door and come into my house, they're immediately transfixed by all the fish tanks I've got, the ponds out the back. You know, it's just, it's something that's within them. They just get it. They find animals interesting. Yet as children get older, I don't know whether it's red tape stopping people from getting out into the natural world and probably having the experiences that you and I had as kids or whether, you know, it's that they're told by their parents that the wild is dangerous or dirty or whether it's just something as simple as access, you know, like as I sit here talking to you today, I'm living in the city centre of Cardiff. Um, one in four gardens across the UK are paved. Mine's paved. I've had to like build my whole gardens up using raised beds because there's three foot of concrete on the actual soil in my back garden. Um, half of the gardens in the UK don't have flowers today. So, you know, if you're not being able to step out into your backyard and immediately access that doorstep green space, then, um, you know, obviously we are going to have problems, aren't we? Kind of. And nurturing that innate interest that kids have in in wild species that alarm's going off now as well. <laughs> yeah that's not the, for this, anyone listening this conversation <laughs> off, yeah. off camera i was like hey alarms keep going off around me and i cannot that, turn them off on my stopwatch sorry about that Jack. that that's not the end of the podcast that's not the warning to sell up to tell people that's that's just uh <laughs> that's just the it's nature just of it <laughs> um lucky no. my two-year-old hasn't run in yet because every time i've been doing any zoom conference call she somehow just come springing in and just destroyed the space so my, my my dog keeps making cameos i mean she keeps running and she'll either be whimpering at the door or, or you know grabbing my foot or something so yeah we're 
not quite a child, I know, but most my, my wife said that it's, it's, it's endearing, but I think yeah. that it's, <laughs> I'm like, that's a really nice way of saying that it's actually just really unprofessional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no worries. No worries. Um, so you, since then, obviously you mentioned you've done the series abroad and you've been doing series closer to home as well. And the one uh, that I watched was Go Fish. I kind of watched that with, with tender hooks, if you excuse the pun. Um, and there's one uh, scene in it where you're trying to find angel sharks, I think, quite, quite a rare shark. And yeah, I, yeah. I, if I remember correctly, you don't catch one on rod and line, but is it someone gets one in a net or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah, mate, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, this yeah. is the first time I've ever spoken about this, actually. Um, and it, I'm so passionate about it. I didn't know that much about angel sharks, but I was really lucky to work with... Um, I'm going to get this wrong, so I will look up for it and send you the details. But I think they're called the Angel Shark Foundation. Um, they're Wales-based. They're an amazing, amazing group. And, um, yeah, they study angel sharks, which is this incredible shark species that sort of, mate, for, for want of a better way of putting it, to totally simplify it, it looks almost like it's got the head of a ray and um, the tail of a shark. Um, and, they're quite rare, aren't they? They're not, they're not I mean, I, I think... <laughs> critically endangered um, yeah. you know, they, they, they were a really um a common species in the mediterranean but yeah that's to, that's where i've seen them yeah i yeah. mean but really difficult to find now you know thanks to um trawling basically you know you, you go along the bottom it's uh, you you trawl through these areas and obviously you're going to pick up everything that lives on the bottom which includes the angel shark species and you know that they're going to die and, and they're going to die out and this is what happens i mean you know you know yourself because you're a scuba diver and i know because i scuba dive a lot i'll never forget actually um we're making a series hidden whales uh two years ago i dived on a, a victorian submarine called the resurgent that is off the north coast of north wales i'm not being funny jack when i was it was a fast current to get to the wreck. And as I was coming in um, to try and find the wreck, I was basically went down to the bottom and then went on the bearing where the wreck was um, following the dive leaders. It was like diving across a ploughed field. Yeah. That is the only way I can describe it. And, and this is one of the great challenges that we have as kind of lovers of fish and you know, communicators about our work is that when people look at the surface of the sea or the surface of a river or the surface of a lake, you know, you, you can't imagine what it looks like on the bottom and you can go down there and see things that are even greater than the fish tank that's behind me now with all of these plants and natural paradises. Or you can go to a place that's been smashed up by us and broken apart by trawlers and you're not going to realise that there's a paradise scene underneath the river waiting for you or that actually there is a scene of some of the most environmental destruction you can possibly imagine that again is hidden from view which means that, you know, we lose out on the richness of, of, of being able to promote these amazing places and amazing landscapes. But getting back to what you originally said, yeah. So I had this series um, on BBC Wales called Go Fish and, and one of the episodes focused on British shark species and in it I was catching blue sharks. But there's an angel shark sequence and these guys from this project, this charity, um, are involved in it. And a lot of their footage had come from Mediterranean angel sharks, which they're able to see on site in those clearer waters. But they were particularly interested in Welsh angel sharks. And they believed that there was a separate species living in Wales of angel shark. And they wanted to prove it, but it was proving very difficult because the water's so murky, it's very difficult to get a visual ID. In fact, they'd never had a visual ID. 
So they were telling me this and suddenly I was thinking, actually I have. And the reason I had was because years and years ago, when I was a researcher um, working in Wales, a television researcher, I'd worked on a series called Four Seasons. And in it, I'd set up a shoot with a spider crab fisherman out of Aberystwyth and we caught an angel shark in the net whilst we were spider crab fishing. And um, yeah, the guy, Dean, an amazing fisherman, gets this angel shark out of the net, he's holding it, you know, this species that now is illegal to catch because the numbers are so critically endangered. And he talks about it and he says, same as what you said, you know, they used to be everywhere. And at one point in the film, um, I can't remember who said it, there's kind of like a bit of chat about the looks of the fish, you know, it's kind of an ugly looking thing superficially. And um, he actually dares the presenter to give it a kiss, which she does. And the angel shark scientists, absolutely. They take in this huge deep breath and they're like, I cannot believe you let her do it. <laughs> and later on, I saw footage of an angel shark striking its prey. And it is literally like a cobra strike. This almost like telescopic protrusion comes out of its mouth with the mouth parts on the end and it inhales this fish. Now, like, if they'd done that to her while she's kissing it for television, it would have ripped a lower jaw clean off her face. Jeez. So, yeah, amazing. <laughs> it was amazing to work with those guys and to talk about that, about that fish species. Um, getting back to what I was saying about diving on the resurgent submarine, one of the interesting things that I did discover whilst I was down there, you see this cloud field, then you see this area where the wrecked sub was, and literally... Because this area is impossible, you know, the submarine is impossible to, um, to fish around with those commercial nets. It has become a haven for wildlife. It's just a vacuum for wildlife. It sits on the edge of a, um, of a field of wind turbines. And the same thing there. You can't go and fish around the wind turbines. And below those wind turbines, it's another wildlife haven. Really, really interesting, isn't it? You give nature a chance and they will fill those vacuums. Yeah, yeah. Remove all of one single species, then it can't reproduce. It can't, can it? It can't. It no. can't. No, no, no. Can't well, it's. So I think often it's out of sight, out of mind, and it's just people don't see what it's like under there, so they just assume it's all well. And and the sad case is it's not. So I think that's why it's important for people like yourself and and, and me to a degree to to show people what's what's happening down there. Definitely. One hundred percent, mate. One hundred percent. And you know, I would encourage anybody listening especially now, you know, we've had settled conditions in the UK, you know, in this lockdown, unbelievable, given how many storms we had when we could have worked through the yeah. winter, so many shoots cancelled. But like, yeah, so I mean, now when we've had settled conditions, you know, it's relatively windless and it's bright. Go out. If you're on your walk, having your, you know, one bit of exercise a day, have a look in the river, have a look in the canal, have a look and see what you can see. You'd be really stunned. I've been encouraging people. I've been doing lessons three times a week through my Facebook page for primary age uh, children. And we're into our sort of uh, fifth week of lockdown now. So I've done quite a few and it's gathering steam. And I've really noticed like so many people now are sending me in pictures of stuff they've seen because they've started taking notice. And you know, as well as I do, you know, the, the, the river ecosystem that we have in the UK, it is rich in places. And if you do just look, you'll see amazing things. Yeah. No, definitely. It is, it's incredible the variety of life we, we have in the UK. Um, you met In the same episode, I think, I seem to remember you going after blues and you had a bit of trepidation about it. You weren't sure, or was it kind of after you weren't sure about catching them? Because obviously sharks are such incredible, beautiful animals and there is 
some flack from people for angling in general, but particularly with these bigger species. So uh, I know for a lot of these shark fishermen, they, they do it and then they tag them. So it's not just for sport, is it? There's, there is a conservation benefit to why some people do this. Yeah, totally. Um, they would argue that, again, getting back to the angel shark question around the coast of Wales, you can't get good visual IDs of these animals without catching them. So the primary way of tagging sharks and recording their behavior and monitoring their health is to catch them on hook and line. We worked with a, um, we worked with a, sorry. <laughs> my toddler's got to put her shoes on again. She's going absolutely mad outside. Um, the primary way of, of, of recording those shark species is to, is to catch them on hook and line and then tag them. So we had a shark tagger on one of the boats that I was on, uh, My Way 2, which is owned by Gethin, who's based in North Wales. And um, it was an amazing day out. And, you know, we spent the whole time uh, tagging any of the sharks we had. We didn't catch anything, you know, particularly amazing. But, yeah, the big bull husks that we brought over, they were all tagged. Um, Warby Shark Savers, if you want to check out um, the woman that does that work she's amazing she's got a great instagram so give that a look so yeah you know like that is the primary way of iding them um however obviously there is a sporting element to it you know it, it would be a lie to say that there isn't you know it's not just anglers going out and doing it for the sake of conservation and science there there is a thrill amongst um you know kind of like the bigger game fishermen um in the sport that like catching those big fish species they like the fight and you know they like to see them slip the hook out and let them go free personally speaking from what i saw like i certainly didn't see any ill effects to the sharks afterwards you know um i doubt they really probably even particularly feel the hooks even in their mouth given what they eat in the wild you know big bony males eating big bony specimens literally just crushing them you know we've had a lot of records of catching two three uh, catching the same fish twice or even three times in the day but for me personally, like I'd never shark fish before. I'd caught shark before, but never deliberately targeting them. Um, I probably wouldn't do it again. Uh, I've got nothing against people that go out and shark fish. This is just, you know, me personally. Um, I didn't love it as much as I love going out and probably having a multi-species, you know, course fishing day, one of those days of wonder. You know, you're going out on a boat, you know, you're baiting big hooks, big baits, you're fishing for, you know, a very sort of narrow fish species, you're chumming the water heavily, you're very much reliant on the skills of the captain that takes you out, and they are undoubtedly very skilled, and, I, you know, I don't want to put people off or, or kind of say I'm holier than thou, it's just not my, not my personal cup of tea, and I think as well, if I am being honest, um, sharks are an endangered species, again, I'm this is just my personal opinions. I don't want to, you know, give anyone a hammer in, you know, like, I don't know. I know, I know I what you mean. I mean, I probably feel like, I, you know, if, if you can, then you should just let them be. But I'm, I, I did it. I had a great time, but it was probably a one-off experience for me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bemoan anybody going out there and shark fishing. There's some amazing shark fishing skippers in this country in Wales. And, you know, they're amazing guys to go and spend a day with. But yeah. Yeah. That's just me, you know. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I've never really been into the whole big game thing, to be honest with you. I, I've always enjoyed, I think it's that connection. So I like to pick the fish up, release it, have a good look at it. Whereas with a shark, for the really big ones, you're not really picking them up. They're at the side of the boat and 
it's, sure, I've, I've never I've never done it. It's not particularly appealed to me. Um, I understand, you know, for the conservation, like you mentioned, you know, I don't see a problem with that. And particularly now, as I'm sure you're aware, all the tuna that are turning up in Cornwall, these oh, huge tuna. So the only way they can kind of get a good look and tag them is is by catching them. But, it wasn't a day we that we didn't go out into the Celtic deeps. You know, whether it was with Rob Rennie, one of the scarp fishermen, um, yeah, uh, fishermen, or um, the guys down on um, uh, what they call Whitewater uh, out yeah. of Pembroke Rocks as well. There wasn't a day that we didn't see uh, the tuna. Really? Yeah. Well, wow. one hundred. I, I honestly, I swear to you, and I was really surprised. Yeah, because, mate. They're huge. Bluefin right. tuna, absolutely enormous. We're talking like a thousand pounds, and you see them come in, and it's just flying through the air, crashing into the bay. Um, yes, I mean there is real chat about um, about targeting those as a sport fish, and um, fair play to the guys. You know, if, if they can if they can get that going as another angle on the sport, and you know they can get more eyes on the ocean, and they can make sure that these fish species aren't being illegally targeted because you know, unfortunately, the truth is, is that bluefin tuna and sharks, both of them have got levels of protection. But when you're out in the open ocean, pre people pretty much, industrial fishermen, they kind of get away with doing what they want, especially in parts of the South Pacific where I've worked. Um, so, you know, if you can get more anglers out there, eyes on the ocean, and there's a scientific element to it, and they're tagging, and they're practicing good catch and release practices, which all of those boats do, then, you know, I mean, I can, I can kind of, you know, I can see it as a good thing, but yeah, probably yeah. not going to be doing it myself. No, 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 I can't, can't argue with you there. So there seems to have been a bit of resurgence in angling and TV. You know, if you look at, I, I sort of remember when I was a bit younger, like the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of angling. And then it seemed to dip for some reason. But the last yeah. five, five or so years, you've had River Monsters, Mortimer and White House, of course, the shows that you've done. I just wondered, do you think there's a reason that angling has sort of had a resurgence on TV? Um, to be honest with you, mate, I could sit here and come up with a nice sort of romantic <laughs> but I, I can pretty much tell you exactly, you know, what, the way that it went. So, you know, when I was a kid, same as you, um, you know, I used to watch Go Fishing on the television with John Wilson. He was yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I wrote a lot about John Wilson and trying to follow in his footsteps uh, when I wrote that book as well. You know, what a legend, what a hero. Really. He's, he's, he's a fan. Well, he, he lived in the fence, didn't he? Norfolk, that sort of neck of the woods. Yeah, do you know what? He, he spent a lot of his time fishing in Norfolk. He might have yeah. actually been based in Suffolk. Oh, okay, Suffolk. okay, yeah. Um, he might have been our oh, mate, mate. No, he was Norfolk. Of course he was. Yeah, he yeah. fished away from me. Sorry, yeah. man. John Wilson, rest in peace, mate. He probably just rolled up. <laughs> yeah. Um, chuckling away <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. And then he moved to Thailand later on in his life, and that was where yeah. he unfortunately passed. But, um, God, I can't believe I just said he was from Suffolk. No, he was Norfolk. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, and they were really popular. And then you had programs on BBC One, like A Passion for Angling with Chris Yates and Bob James, absolutely legendary series, rated off the wall on the BBC. And then there was a couple of flops. I, I don't know what they were, because I, I can't, I probably didn't see them or they weren't on my radar. And basically it became people within commissioning in mainstream television were basically got the opinion that t that fishing on TV didn't, um, fishing didn't rate. So then it was sort of like migrated over to like, um, you know, the satellite channels like Discovery Shed where Matt Hayes did his um, fishing yeah. shows and all that sort of thing. And that was where, you know, I kind of would get my fishing TV fix from. And then, yeah, you're quite right. There has been a resurgence lately, definitely. Um, 
you know, Jeremy Wade came along with River Monsters on Animal Planet. It became the biggest rating show on, in Animal Planet history. But obviously that was made for an American audience over in Britain. You know, it, it still was really watched when they had its ITV4 stuff, but it, it wasn't like, you know, it was still kind of seen. It's like, well, kind of fishing shows like that, that extreme fishing element, you know, that's more of an Americanized thing. You know, I don't think the commissioners have really latched onto it here in the UK. Um, the game changer beyond any shadow of a doubt was Warren um, and Whitehouse coming along with their Gone Fishing series on well, BBC Two. One of the things you know, I noticed. That... Sorry, well, one one of the things I noticed was a lot of my friends who are not remotely interested in fishing loved that series. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Oh, it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's such a good series, and it ticks so many of the boxes about what fishing is. You know. We talked about shark fishing earlier and stuff and like people can often get confused non-anglers when they just see a bloke and let's be honest unfortunately it is predominantly blokes i think one in four in the sport are females at the moment you know they, they see a bloke sat with a big fish and it becomes this sort of like either it's a macho machismo thing or it's a bunch of blokes drowning maggots and it's boring basically whereas actually it's neither of those things if you speak to anglers it's about spending time on the bank immersing yourself in nature it's about that sort of thrill of what might be down there you know what you might catch that day and it's also when you're fishing with your friends it's about having a really good laugh and that is what obviously you know more and more and white house do and because they both had serious health problems they talk about on the show with their heart you know what they're doing is they're showing that fishing is a really good accessible way of getting back out into the countryside and enjoying wildlife again and it's good for you man it's good for the soul and it's got massive physical benefits as well and it's encapsulated in those shows they're a great laugh they catch some really cool fish they go to some really lovely places um and yeah it's rated off the scale it's got a second series and now it's got a third series and it's coming out and it's it's good news for all of us as well because you know, when you get big mainstream successes like that, it means the littler guys like me are able to kind of slightly bunny hop onto that. And you get fishing shows like Go Fish off the ground. Yeah, you can argue like the point, can't you? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's great, man. Um, uh, and fishing needs to boost. You know, licence sales are going down. Um, I, I work with the, um, the Angling Trust. I'm an ambassador for those guys. I work with World Fish Migration Day. Um, as does Jeremy Wade from River Monsters. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to do as much as we can to promote the sport and to promote the really good things about it because, you know, I think that it's got a lot of benefits and shows like Morton and White House Gone Fishing being watched by millions, hopefully will encourage more and more people to, to pick up a rod and get started because, you know, there's so many lovely fishing clubs that you can join um, wherever you live in the UK or you know wherever you are around the world you know we all actually live so close to water and even if you're living in the middle of a city like i am actually here we're blessed with some of the best water because now the industry has died back in cities like cardiff the water's come back and it's so clean it's so pure and it's actually faring better here than it does in those traditional settings like in the river y you know where there's loads of agri pollution and stuff like that kicking off all the time with the great rivers of west west wales like the toey and stuff now actually here in the city center of cardiff we've had greater levels of stability in our waterways than any of those places so yeah get a rod man honestly it's a way <laughs> forward 
definitely, definitely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about Cardiff. So, because you're more likely to be found in South Wales now, aren't you? Obviously, you're from the Fen, Fenland originally, but you're in, yeah. in South Wales. So what, what drew you to, to Wales then? Why, why kind of uh, leave your cap there, so to speak? I think I've always been, I've always been nomadic. Um, my family are all originally from North Yorkshire. Um, on my mum's side, they're all sort of coal miners. Um, you know, grew up in a pit village. Uh, mining was going south when I was born um, in 83. Uh, you know, it was a bad time. And, um, you know, my mum and dad uh, made the move out of Yorkshire. They've gone back now. You find this with Yorkshire folk. Like <laughs> my mum, they pretty died in the wall. You know, she's like, I will not be leaving the county again. <laughs> um, she's like, you know, I will be buried here now. Um, but yeah, so I, I, we moved to the Fens because my, um, my dad had a job opportunity. And uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up very lucky to grow up in the Fens, you know, real sense of freedom down there. Um, and even though I consider it my home, you know, and, and that's where I grew up, that sort of like sense of belonging that you, that you see in people like my mum who's from Yorkshire or people from here in South Wales, you know, you know, that Welsh identity, you know, I don't really have that. So I've always been able to kind of move around. So yeah, I left South Wales. Um, I lived in Yorkshire for a while. I went to uni in Leeds. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in New Guinea. I've done a lot of work in Indonesia um, over the years. So I've always been able to move. And one of the best opportunities when I was sort of as an expert, I was working as an expedition leader, um, studying intertribal trade in New Guinea. And I was also working behind the scenes in television, as we mentioned earlier, like going up the rungs from runner to researcher, et cetera, et cetera. And I got to a point where I was like, actually, I need to bring these two elements of my life, the expeditions and the TV work together somehow. There were only two companies in the UK when I decided to do that, which would have been sort of 2008 time, so 12 years ago now, that were working at the sort of high end of expedition filmmaking. One was Keogh Films, based in London, and the other was Indus Films, based in Cardiff. Indus were making this long-running series at the time called Tribe with Bruce Parry. I wrote to them, asked for a job. I was about to go on expedition. Um, I'd got a grant with the Royal Geographical Society to go back and continue research in New Guinea. I wrote to them and asked them for a camera, but basically I was looking for a job. And luckily they gave me the camera, and when I came back from New Guinea and showed them my work, they offered me a job. And that was it. I moved to Cardiff. I worked on a climbing film called The Iger Wall of Death. Um, I was literally just doing maternity cover and they kept me on. And I worked there for almost two years and just fell in love with South Wales. Like it's, it's an amazing place to live. You know, as I sat here, sat here talking to you now in Cardiff, I can, well, when COVID stops, it's 10 minutes to the beach. It's 20 minutes to the Brecon Beacons. You know, this amazing national park. The beaches here are awesome. And then I've got all of the fishing on my doorstep. The River Taff is incredible. You know, you could fish a lifetime on that river, even just on my home stretches and still not master it. We've got loads of lakes around here too, you know, and, um, you know, I just feel really blessed. And the biggest blessing of all is, to be honest with you, like the embrace of the Welsh people, you know, like when I came down here and started working as a broadcaster, as a presenter, as a journalist, I was a bit, you know, I had a bit of a, you know, a, a, a complex, what do you call it? Um, insecurity? Yeah, not insecurity. What, what's the name? Um, that's about the biggest word I know, so. <laughs> <laughs> name of the complex when you feel imposter syndrome. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. Imposter syndrome because I'm like you know I'm uh, you know I'm I'm living in England 
I'm from England with an English accent. You know, I'm, I'm learning Welsh, but my Welsh isn't great. But I'm, a lot of my work is predominantly talking about Welsh history and Welsh landscapes. And I was worried that, you know, it would, it would be, it, it'd be really difficult to do that. Um, whereas actually people here, you know, when you show passion, I think when you show passion for anything, people will come along with you. And, you know, I'm really passionate about the landscapes around here. You know, I'm really passionate about Welsh countryside. I think that it's an amazing place and I'm really passionate about Welsh people. I think they've got an amazing history. I think it was very lucky that I'd come from that coal mining background. So there was a, there was a real sort of shared history, especially yes, here in South Wales. Yeah. You know, there's an enormous amount of parallels between that history and obviously the history that my family have gone through. Um, you know, since the pits closed. But, um, mate, Wales is, I think it undersells itself. There's this reticence at the heart of Welsh people not to blow their own trumpet about, you know, the, which is phenomenal. You know, it's a fantastic trait to have in anybody. But I think that it means that Wales sometimes undersells itself. And, you know, places like Gower, places like Snowdonia National Park, we talked before we started recording about SCOMA, um, you know, all the national parks. And then even just, you know, there's so many places that get zero recognition. Yeah. Like some of the best I've ever been, like literally ever been in my life. There's this, there's this nature reserve that sits between two council estates out at the top of Merthyr Tidville called the Taff Vecan Nature Reserve. My goodness me, honestly, I'm not kidding and I'm not overselling this place. I... It is like it reminded me of walking down forested gullies in New Zealand in their premier national parks. And it's this little nature reserve between two council estates, you know, two of the most sort of notorious council estates as well. Not that I've ever had any problems there. You know, it's always like whenever they want to do like some spin on, you know, the Welsh valleys or whatever and kind of make them out to look like, you know, not very nice places. It's always, they always focus on these two council estates, but these two council estates on their doorstep, they've got the Brecon Beacons National Park and the Tafmeca Nature Reserve. And seriously, man, they are two of the best places I've ever been in my life. So, yeah, feel very blessed to be here. I don't think it takes something pretty cataclysmic to, to shift in our lives, um, my wife and I, for us to leave Wales now. You know, we're hoping to move um, to the coast in a couple of years and get uh, sorry not in a couple of years in a couple of months and get out of the city yeah but, um yeah like love it down here absolutely love it where do you live jack i i live in uh, in nottingham so i'm in in the mid well east midlands so uh middle of the country um it's not too, you know peak district's an hour away so i spend a lot of time in the peak district um but i, I feel like i know mad myself because i'm hardly at home so i'm always always all over the place but I'm a, I'm a bit guilty of not going to wales much and i know uh, do you know david miller the fish artist are you familiar with him yeah so i know oh, dave i know the da- artwork for the lot every year that's right yeah so I, I sometimes go stay with him because he lives uh in pembrokeshire i can't remember exactly where he lives it might be in pembroke itself so uh, i normally go there, there every year but i, I should do wales more because it's a it's a phenomenal place and i would like to do more kind of filming in, in some of the welsh uh, rivers and, and lakes and things can I ask, I don't know whether you've, you've answered this on your podcast before, um, but what, what first got you into underwater filmmaking? What was it that sort of lit your fuse? Can you remember your first sort of recordings and, you know, um, what, what gripped you? Because it's an unusual... Yeah, it is, isn't it? Unusual um, profession. Yeah, I guess... Um, so partly because... Well, so I've always been interested in wildlife since, since I started existing, I suppose. I just remember being interested in nature in general. And then I started fishing when I was about 11. So that's when the kind of interest in fish came along. 
Um, and then I did a degree down in Cornwall in marine and natural history photography. So the degree was built in with underwater filming. But I couldn't afford to stay in Cornwall because it's a lovely place to live, but it's not cheap to live there. So I came back yeah. to Nottingham and I thought, well, I want to carry on doing underwater filming. But Nottingham, I don't know if you know on a map, but it's about as central as you can get. So I thought, yeah. well, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, there's loads of rivers, loads of lakes. I'll crack on with that. And because I had the past in angling, I knew where which fish would be where. And it kind of formed out of that. So it was, it was actually necessity as well as interest. And then almost from a kind of jobs point of view, because I noticed hardly anyone was doing it. You look how many bird, bird photographers there are and, you know, cameramen who do kind of mammals and stuff. But there was next to no one doing fish intimately. And I thought, well, there's maybe a gap in the market in this. So a multitude of reasons kind of funneled me towards this career, really. Did you ever get any funny looks? Because, you know, <laughs> I imagine you're down in Nottingham, you're slipping under the water with a camera, you know, you've got your wetsuit on and stuff. I mean, you're right, it is, it is a niche in the market. I don't think anyone has ever probably filmed the stuff in the places that you've filmed. No. Um, but did anyone ever sort of say, mate, what are you doing? Or, or, or even worse, like, are you okay? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong? Oh, yeah. So, um, so I, I grew up on a council estate. Not, I, mean, I don't live there now. I moved away. But I, I used to do a lot of filming on there. And, you know, you're face down in, in a river for long enough. People start to think. <laughs> and I had the, yeah. police, the police called out once because they thought I was a body. And I had to say, no, no, I'm just, just filming fish. And that didn't really help the situation too much. But um, it's, it's normally kind of uh, people are just interested in what I'm doing. And it, I've never really had any bad experiences. It's just people like, oh, what are you doing? And you go, oh filming fish and then you'll get the classic there's no fish in there it's just shopping trolleys and whatever you're like well you know there is so yeah get a bit of that i love that that's, that's one of the best things um is when you can totally turn people's opinions of the waterway on their doorstep on their head you know whether it's for yourself showing them a picture or for me as an angler just showing them a fish i remember um I was down there is actually a network of canals in cardiff but people don't really know much about them because they're subterranean for quite a long time oh, okay um but i was uh i was fishing where they pop up just before they get to the big docks and um i caught this pike and you literally you could have jumped across the canal section where i got it from and it was right on the stroke of nightfall you know as we all know you know predators love to hunt just as it's getting dusky and i was illuminated by a street light you know this like orange hue cast over the scene you know like it looked like an Amsterdam red light district and suddenly you know, <laughs> toothy predator and it was it was probably about 10 pounds in weight I didn't weigh it but a substantial fish for a tiny bit of water and there was this lad um uh, these two lads smoking a spliff and they came walking <laughs> along and you, you can tell they're just you know on their usual beat sort of thing walking on the canal towpath and this guy had his hood up and his eyes I've never seen it they just suddenly went so wide the spliff's like <laughs> dangling out like comedically from his bottom lip he's trembling and he was like mate what the fuck is that and he collapses to his knees and i'm there just holding this pike and you know i was able to open it up and show him the teeth and the mouth parts and you know the coloration of this creature and he just said i he was like mate i've been walking down here my whole life and i ain't never seen anything like that before and i was like well, there you go man and yeah slipped it back into the water and it was so cool you know and it if you can make that sort of you know that that guy's going to go away he took a picture of it and you know he's going to go away and you know i was tell his i was, was going to you know 
I was going to ask, did he take a picture? Because otherwise he's going to think it was the skunk or something that just, he just imagined yeah, it. <laughs> he tried to, but his hand, his hand was trembling so much. I was like, are you sure you've got that? You know, it looks a bit blurry, but he was like, no, 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 mate. Oh, no, it was God. good. So it's so important. You know? it's, it's great. So important. It's great when you get that. Um, well, look, I'm going to end on this last question, Will, anyway. So presenting is often seen as quite a, a difficult gig, but was it something that you always wanted to do? Mate, that is a brilliant question to finish on. Um, no, it wasn't. It's the short answer. Um, in fact, I, whilst I was building up through my television career, you know, going from runner to researcher to assistant producer, I can remember actually thinking these presenters are right pain in the arse. And there were definitely <laughs> times when I was like, I wish we could just make it without them. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I didn't. I didn't ever really have designs on it. It was a. It was a happy accident, if I'm being honest. And. You know, the piece of advice I give to anybody that's thinking about getting involved in television or presenting is don't just become a presenter for the sake of becoming a presenter. Don't just get any job in television because you want to you wanna be able to kind of impress your mates by saying you work in this really cool seeming industry. You know, it is a slog a lot of the times. There's a lot of times when I'll do work, you know, completely pro bono. I'll work for free. It's a graft and it can be a slog. So forget about all of that. What you want to be doing in life in general is making the things that you are most passionate about your career. And I was, hello, darling. I was super, <laughs> super, this is Grace. I was super, super passionate about the outdoors, about fishing, about the natural world, about Welsh history, and about people that live. Yeah, it's not a bat. That's Jack. <laughs> Well, about, I've, I've about been called people. I've been called worse than a bat. I'll take that from Grace. <laughs> <laughs> about about people that live and work in amazing kind of you know for me in the South Pacific in amazing jungles of the world. And you know I took those passions and it ended up becoming a career in television. But you know I could quite have easily have gone in different directions into research. I could have gone much more down the writing route, but I didn't. And I was really lucky I did get into presenting but it came from my passion and that's the most important thing. Pursue your passions. Don't pursue a job title. Well, look, buddy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and, and having a cameo from, from Grace at the end as well. And I'm hello, sure... Jack. <laughs> hello, Jack. Hello, Jack. Hello. <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. It's no, been a real pleasure. Loved it. No worries. Catch you soon. So that was Will Millard. What a great guy. That was an absolute pleasure talking to him. And following on from the Welsh theme, I thought I'd better do a Welsh nature reserve, and that's going to be SCOMA today. So SCOMA is Nature Reserve of the Week. It's managed by the Wildlife Trust of South and West Wales, and is located less than a mile from the Pembrokeshire coast. The island itself is seven... The island itself is 720 acres, but the public obviously don't cover that in a day trip, so mostly sticks the paths near where the boat drops you off. There's plenty to see on the way to the island as well. You've got dolphins on the boat trip over, harbour porpoises, large numbers of grey seals, uh, and of course all the seabirds there. Razor bills, you see gannets as you go over, uh, fulmars. Um, and of course the unique scoma vole once you get there, and this is a subspecies of bank vole which is only found on scoma. The island is surrounded by some of the richest waters, lots and lots of wildlife below the surface as well, everything from sea slugs and all kinds of amazing creatures. But what scoma is probably best known for is of course its puffins. 
as they are steadily rising in number. As of 2019, 24,000 puffins were estimated to be on the island, so it's great to see them doing well. Scoma is also well known for Manx shearwaters. They winter over in Brazil and then they come back to Scoma to breed with around 350,000 birds on the island, which is a huge proportion of their overall numbers. Now you won't see them in the day, they come in there at night because they're very clumsy walkers and susceptible to predation from gulls and things like that. But they are a very, very unique bird to that part of the world. During the spring, the island is covered in a display of beautiful bluebells. So most of the island appears blue from a distance. If you go a little bit later in the year, you also get a shade of pink to the island's colour. And this is swathes of campion that cloak the landscape. Now if you're a member of the South and West Wales Wildlife Trust, you get unlimited landings in April, August and September. But during peak season of May, June and July, you only get two free landings. If you're not a member, then you just pay the landing fee uh, as, as and when you go. So it's all pretty simple. It's around about a 15 minute boat ride, so it doesn't take you too long to get there. You can't pre-book tickets, so the only way to guarantee is to get there early. And they cap visits to 250 people a day to help stop wildlife disturbance and erosion. There are steep steps from the boat landing, so you'll need to be relatively fit to walk around the island. And the boat departs uh, around 10am each morning with the last one at 3pm and there are some intermittently between that as well. There is accommodation on the island for volunteers and rangers and also self-catering, although you have to book well in advance for a chance uh, to get onto that. But if you can, staying on Scoma is an amazing experience. I've been to Scoma a few times, I've never stayed there, but I would very much like to do that. So there's no calf on the island, but if you really need to, you can buy water from where the toilets are, a little kind of end of the path as you go off, you see that. Ideally, before you go, there's the Lockley Lodge Visitor Centre and they sell food, uh, there's drinks and all kind of gifts and stuff like that. Um, there are toilets on the island as well, uh, around an 800 metre walk from the landing jetty, so make sure uh, you can get there in time because you don't want to be caught out if you're a little bit desperate. But overall, Skoma is a phenomenal place. I've dived around Skoma. I've taken pictures on Skoma. It's a beautiful, beautiful reserve. And it's one of those places that if you've never been to, why haven't you been to? It's a phenomenal place. Give it a go. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. I thought Will was an absolutely fantastic guest with some amazing uh, experiences, stories, and you can tell his passion really shines through. Until next time, this has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you next time. Cheers.